You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. We are continuing our leadership series with Bishop Jameson Hardy in just a moment. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin for supporting The Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live Uncommon. Our guest today, the Reverend Dr. Jameson Hardy, Bishop of the English District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. He's also author of Pastoral Leadership, Shepherding and Caring for God's People from Concordia Publishing House. Pastor Hardy, welcome back to The Coffee Hour. Great to be with you. All right. We're coming to the close of the book Hmm. as we're looking at pastoral leadership and today talking about pastoral leadership as pastoral care. What's the relationship of the things that we typically think of as of the Office of Holy Ministry and pastors, preaching, teaching and administering the sacraments to all the other aspects of pastoral leadership? Yeah, the the premise of the book from the very beginning until now is and will remain that pastoral leadership always is and chiefly remains the giving of God's gift to his people, as you said, word and sacrament ministry. And and I think that must be understood because all the other things that go into pastoral leadership are grown out of or form out of those basic original and highest forms of pastoral leadership. And I, I think, too, when you when you look at it, my contention is that pastoral care is pastoral leadership. As I've said in previous episodes, the people of God in every congregation expect their pastor to have understanding and knowledge in, in many, many, many different areas. And so his presence alone and giving pastoral care is going to be pastoral leadership. And so that's why I think it's really important that we make that connection, because pastoral leadership encompasses a lot of other things besides word and sacrament, but they're founded, rooted, and start in pastoral, or excuse me, in sacramental ministry. How are leadership issues then related to spiritual issues? And does this have to do with the color of carpeting? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the, that's the example. I mean, I... As a vicar, this is this is the story I tell in the book. As a vicar, I walked into Mount Calvary in Brookings, South Dakota, and they were doing a building addition. And the supervising pastor stat, sat down, and he said to me, he said, do not get involved when they choose the color of the carpet. Apparently, there was this big blow-up at the church because somebody wanted red, somebody, you know. And, and so the I believe, as I said in the, in the previous episode on finance, I believe that Every issue is a spiritual issue. They're not isolated to finance, to to decision-making. Now, the color of the carpet is not a spiritual issue, which is why the pastor should just stay out of it. I mean, there's, just, there's no reason to even contribute to the thought of what color the carpet is. But I do think, you know, what the chancel looks like or what the altar area looks like is a little bit different than the color of the carpet. Is there going to be a crucifix versus not? That's another one. You know, I, it, there, there are certain things that are a part of design that do matter. I mean, I get very nervous when I go to a congregation and I see pets running around the sanctuary up at the altar area. And I won't, I won't uh, make any uh, examples here because this has happened. And one of my very, very good pastors and a very, very, very good friend of mine, he's a great pastoral leader, uh, he, he has his dog with him all the time at church. And it's, I mean, me, I'm just talking about me here when I say this. I'm not as comfortable with that. You see what I mean? But that that's that's a different scenario than the color of the carpet, you see. 
And so I think there is a very thin line between pastors that want to interject in things that are not important versus things that are theologically important. But see, there could be theological implications in the color of the carpet. I mean, it could be <laughs> baptismal blue or sacramental red. I mean, well, I don't know, Andy. Do you know that most congregations paint their church doors red upon completion of paying their mortgage? Did you know that that was a historical thing? I, I didn't, Whoa. but I'm learning something new today. That's so, so when cool. You, when you drive by a church, if you see the doors of the church being red, like the main doors, historically, that was always a sign that the church had paid off their mortgage. Wow. How did that, any idea how that began? Like, <laughs> I don't know how it began. All I know is that's what I was told when Arch, when I asked, why are we painting the church doors red? Going back to this color of the carpet deal, right? Uh-huh. We, we, we put some, and these were like... 10-foot wooden doors weighed like 700 pounds. I mean, these were, you know, old school stone arch frameway doors. And I asked one of my elders, I said, why, they painted them red. Why did we paint them red? We paid off the mortgage and historically, and he gives me this long, I don't even know if it's true, to be frank with you. But I know that that's what my guys told me. And I, I asked other churches, for instance, the Episcopalian Church in Mount Lebanon, Pennsylvania, I asked their pastor and he said, yeah, they paint their doors red in, in their church when they paid off the That's so interesting. That's fascinating. I learned something new today. (laughs) A couple of things new today. So how many doors have you painted red? I haven't painted any red because (laughs) the congregation that I served had already paid it off. And the second, the merger congregation, we had no mortgage. Uh Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. And frankly, uh, the uh, the story I told you in the last episode on finance, I, I'm actually in favor of holding mortgages at lower rates and investing money at a higher rate. So I don't have any use to pay off a mortgage, especially if I have a low interest rate. And that's counterintuitive because people will say, you know, that's a pastoral leadership. You should always, the Bible says you shouldn't have debts. Well, the Bible says you shouldn't be indebted to others. It doesn't say you shouldn't have debts. If you're paying your debts and you're, you know, you're managing your money and you have a positive financial arbitrage, that's a pastoral thing that I would say to to pastors, look, you need to be jumping in as a pastoral leader here and at least giving the other side of the coin. Let's let's talk a little bit more about how these are spiritual issues. For example, that not wanting to be in debt. And and you said that, you know, the Bible says that you shouldn't be indebted to another. Let's talk a little bit more about these, how these are spiritual issues. Okay, so we know the carpeting, the color of the carpeting isn't necessarily a spiritual issue. What are some other spiritual issues when it comes to, whether it's finances or or other issues uh, in the congregation that are good examples of it being a spiritual issue that a pastoral leader can can recognize and and, and address through pastoral care? Yeah, I'll I'll just speak about this in terms of my own ministry and history. Well, we had a commitment Sunday where everybody wrote their financial commitment on a card. They came up you know, during the offering time. It was very ritualistic, and they put the card in the box, and it was kind of, it was called Commitment Sunday, right? Guess what? That box was never open until the next year, the day before the next commitment ceremony, and then the old cards were taken out and thrown in the garbage, and the new ones were put in. Why did you, I mean, I, I made a big stink about this. And I, fr- I frankly, I, 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 the council, the elders, we decided never to do it again because the cards were not being looked at to create a budget, which by the way, 
is a good reason to do a commitment Sunday kind of thing. I mean, so there's a theological implication there. The argument that I was given was, well, this is this commitment is between God and, and the people of God, and it's not our job to hold them accountable to it. And I, I told them, I said, this is not an ideal of holding them accountable. If we're going to use their commitments, we use it to create a budget so we know what we're going to be getting in in revenue, so that's more realistic. That would be the only reason to do a quote-unquote commitment Sunday. But as far as I'm concerned, it's a theological problem, because to have people put them in a box, lock it, not open it for another year, only to dump them out to make way for the new ones, that's a theological problem. And that might seem silly to you, but I can tell you it's a cultural change in a congregation where people like to see, you know, they, they want they want themselves seen walking up front and putting their card in, whatever their card says. For all you know, the card says, I'm giving nothing, you loser. You see what I mean? And and because it was never looked at, you, you know, and, and I looked at the cards when we dumped them out, and you'd be kind of floored what people put on these cards because I knew for a fact these were not anywhere near what these people were actually giving in some cases, you know. And it was more for the point that if somebody did read it, in their minds, you see, someone will think better of me. Well, that's not what stewardship is about. And so there's a specific uh, theological problem, Andy, that a custom in the church became a theological problem in my ministry in life. Mm-hmm. Speaking of, of stewardship... How is pastoral leadership, stewardship of, of the gifts that are that are given across all different aspects of what pastoral leadership and ministry is? Can you ask that again? I'm, I, I guess I didn't understand. Yeah. How is pastoral leadership stewarding the gifts that are entrusted to the pastor and the congregation? Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. So holding people accountable, really. Uh, the text for this last Sunday, I, I was in Atlanta for a 10-year anniversary of one of my pastors. The Old Testament text was, what does God ask of you? To fear him. Notice it starts there, and I'll get back to that. To obey his commandments, to love him, to love the, uh, the neighbor as the self. And in the New Testament, Jesus summarizes the law. And, and I love the, the gospel text here where it, it highlights the Pharisees saw that Jesus was kind of putting the Sadducees in their place. And then the Bible says, and a lawyer, one among them, asked Jesus a question to trick him. I mean, that, I'm, I'm adding a little bit to, to, to it, but it does say to deceive him. And he asked the question, what is the greatest of the law? Now, remember, this question in and of itself is a problem because we're, at, we're told by God that all the, the law of God is all equal. So what does Jesus do? Love God and love your neighbor. That's the summarization of the two tablets of the law. Not only did he dumbfound the Pharisee, he caused a massive problem for the Pharisees now. Because loving God first, and then the second is like it, loving the neighbor, was foreign to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so as a pastoral leader, holding God excuse me, holding the God's people accountable to loving God and loving the neighbor in all situations. I can tell you right now that congregations that are not externally focused are congregations that are doing nothing but staving off death. So that's a pastoral leadership issue. And that goes back to the whole love God, love your neighbor bit. 
We're talking leadership with the Reverend Dr. Jameson Hardy, Bishop of the English District and author of Pastoral Leadership, Shepherding and Caring for God's People from Concordia Publishing House. We'll continue the conversation in just a moment, right here on The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason, to use your God-given gifts to help others, to live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world, to live a life that's uncommon. Whether you're taking one of 50-plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live Uncommon. Welcome back to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. We're talking with the Reverend Dr. Jameson Hardy, Bishop of the English District and Pastor, uh, I mean, author of Pastoral Leadership, Shepherding and Caring for God's People. So we've been talking about pastoral leadership and stewarding, being stewards of the gifts entrusted to you. This particular last chapter focusing on leadership as a means of pastoral care. When you talk about pastoral care, maybe unpack that a little bit more. What is, uh, how would you describe pastoral care for someone who maybe hasn't used that phrase a lot? Yeah, this happened to me just Saturday. I was in a conversation with a, a member of one of my congregations in the district, and I found myself listening to what was being talked about. And within the context of the conversation, I find my I found myself having to give absolution and pastoral care at a moment in time that there was no expectation that that was occurring. And so, pastoral care is is helping the people of God in some cases who are overburdened with sin be forgiven and declare the forgiveness of Christ. That's pastoral care. It's also pastoral care when the pastor stands in the fire of criticism and and calls out, in some cases, behavior that is not becoming of a child of God. Sometimes it is trying to correct a lay leader who may be living a life that is certainly not worthy of being called a, called a child of God. I was just on a panel for a reinstatement for a pastor who was put on restricted status and one of the problems at the root and heart of his restricted status was the fact that his congregation had built a wall around him and that nobody gave him honest feedback. In, in some respects, they kind of, I don't want to say the, they lied, that's not, but they didn't tell him the honest truth. And so there became this aura about this pastor that he, he was just the greatest thing under the sun. When in fact, all that was really happening was he wasn't being told the truth. And so that created in him kind of a, a motivation to motivate those people to continue to do that because the wall continued to be built that he was just this great person. And meanwhile, the honest feedback that he needed was not being given to him. Now you flip that on the other side, the pastor has an obligation to do that with his lay people. It's loving the neighbor to go to somebody who maybe is in a, a leadership position in the church and say, hey, listen, you know, you you can't sleep with your neighbor. It's kind of against God's commands. You're married. You see, you see what I mean? That is 
that's an extraordinary case. I, I realize it, but you can minimize pastoral care down to any number of things, including just hearing a member who's unburdening their heart and giving them absolution. Where do we find the the basis for pastoral leadership, pastoral care in scripture? What are some of those places, especially maybe in, in the ordination where, where it all begins? Where are some of those places in scripture that we find the, the direction that pastors are supposed to go with leadership and ministry? Yeah, I think, Sarah, you really captured it. It's the, it's the ordination right that I really think stands out here. You confess that you will teach both the young and the old, and that's a very important classic confession that a pastor makes. There's a reason why we say both the young and the old. It's, it's assumed that a pastor will teach everybody in the church, and that's not true. A lot of guys don't like to teach the children. Uh, me, I have a blast with it because I like to make fun of them the whole time. And they love having me in there. In fact, I teach religion at Our Savior in Heartland every Wednesday when I'm in town, which isn't recently, in the last two or three weeks. But every time I see the kids on Sunday when I'm preaching, they ask me, hey, Bishop, when are you going to be in class? You know, when's the next time you're coming? Because they, they want that interaction on top of that theological teaching. So, I mean, my style with the kids is I have fun with them. I mean, learning has to be fun, and, and I think that's, that's one thing. The second thing is that you will not profess the confessions that you, will, you are given in confession. You will keep to yourself until death those things confessed to you. And, and again, pastoral care, you want to ruin a ministry real quick, start talking about confession that you've heard and that you've forgiven. Not only is that a, a theological faux pas, your ministry will be over if you start doing that. So, I mean, these are just two kind of polar opposite examples, but I mean, that that installation right is just jam-packed with the promises that a pastor makes to be a pastoral leader. They're, they're both equal and one and the same in many instances. Let's talk about some of the, the practices that are good for becoming and and maintaining that staying a high quality pastoral leader? Well, I mean, if you're, when it comes to maintaining being a high quality pastoral leader, I think one of those things for me has always been a continual feeding of a thirst for growing in my faith, growing in my knowledge and wisdom and my leadership ability. And I, I put this in the book, I, you know, one of the greatest things you can do is have a mentor who's an excellent leader because you learn by example. I, I, I mentioned the most influential man in my life in this is a layman, Keith Ferndack. He's the CEO of Concordia Lutheran Ministries. Of, he's been a part of my life since my very first day of ordination in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I served about 17 years on the parent board of his nonprofit organization. I I've learned a lot of my leadership from him, and it, it was never sit down and lecture me, right? It was always, I watched what he did, I questioned him, I challenged him, I learned from seeing what was successful, and occasionally we'd sit down and I would ask him, I, I would say this to him, I would say, I don't care about how, I point to my head, I go, I want to know why, right? I, don't tell me how you got this the right way. I want to know what was the thought process to get there. And occasionally he would open up his bag of tricks and, you know, share some things with me. Most of what he would share with me was financial in nature. 
But, you know, I think it's a continual desire to grow theologically and, and relationally, and then also with your knowledge of leadership. How does goal setting fit into continuing to grow as a pastoral leader? Look, if you don't have goals, you will not be successful. I, every time I achieve a goal, I reset a new goal. I'll give you one quick one. When I became bishop in 2015 of the English district, we had about $750,000, maybe $850,000 corporate evaluation, our, our asset, the entire asset pool was right, right around eight, eight, eight 800000 maybe eight fifty, depending on the time of day or week. And I made a goal that I wanted to have $10 million as a corporate asset by the time I got done doing the job as a bishop, where, whether it was three years or 12, if I do the whole four terms. And I had to reevaluate that goal this last year because uh, middle of this year, 2023, we've already hit that goal. So I've, I've readjusted it to $20 million as a corporate asset by the time I'm done. It's going to be very difficult for me to achieve that goal. I'm not, I'm not going to try to say it's not. And how we got to the $10 million valuation had many different pieces to it, including some assets that were given to us, including some performance of the endowment. Uh, there's a lot of factors to it. But like any good cake, there's all kinds of important components that go into the cake to make the cake which includes the time it's being baked, how much time it's resting on top. You know, I mean, I could go down the list. There's no one thing that achieves a goal. So if a person doesn't have a goal, what are they working for? And, and this is my point, uh, Sarah. If you don't have a goal, what is driving you and what is motivating you? And for me, I just have an unquenchable thirst to be the best at what God has given me to do and whatever that means. When I was wrestling, it was wrestling. I'm no longer wrestling. Those days are done. But I still got that drive in me to want to be the best. And I would encourage every pastor to set goals. And, and by the way, that also is numerical goals. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, you know, we want to have a $25,000 in the black budget next year where we perform, you know, or I want to add 25 worshiping attendees to the church in a year. There's nothing wrong with that. I hate to quote Arnold Schwarzenegger, but he's right here. The higher your goal, the the higher your failure will be. Me meaning, if your goal is exceedingly high and you don't reach it, you're still going to hit really ex extraordinary heights of achievement. And I think that's that's something that we got to get a winning culture in the church. We don't have. We don't have a winning culture. Look, I'm a Detroit Lions fan. And if you pay attention to the Detroit Lions. They're doing uh, so well. <laughs> yeah, Dan Campbell said this yesterday in the interview after they won their fifth, fourth or fifth, I think fifth victory. And he said, we are getting the taste of winning and we like it. Mm -hmm. and I think that's what we that's what we have to get this understanding of goal setting. You set a goal, you achieve it. There's satisfaction in this. And there's also biblical satisfaction in this. To whom much is given, much is expected. I don't think setting high goals is, is selfish or arrogant. It's biblical. If you've been given a lot, God demands a lot from you. So I, I'm a big fan of goal setting, and I think that good, effective pastoral leaders are going to have audacious goals, because the worst they can do is just come up short. And how does goal setting like that make a difference? And for example, the goal that you set for 
your uh, work in the English district, yeah. how did achieving that goal then make a difference? How, how does that then make a difference for the congregations of the English district and the work that the English district is able to do? Yeah, very simply put, the more money that I can put in the endowment, the more I ensure that the decline of the giving from congregations go down, the more I can ensure that the ministry the district provides both to the district and its workers goes up. Meaning, the less amount of money we get in support from our congregations, the more I'm going to add to the services that we have to the churches because I have the financial resources to do that. I want the district to be in a place, and this is a, this is a goal I, I likely will not achieve in, in my tenure, but in my wildest dreams, I want the endowment of the English district to perform that if we got zero congregational contributions, we could continue to give the highest level of services to the churches and the workers without a dollar from our churches. And how do you do that? You got to have a pretty big endowment and you got to have a pretty big financial mechanism that's turning cash over in profit every year. And so my goal is to be able to do that. We've lost about 35 to 40% of revenue in the last decade. I've increased the services the district has given to its churches. How have I done it? Much of that is being paid for by interest, dividends, and performances out of the endowment. So, you know, this is just, a, it's not a strategy. It's a lifestyle. The church must prepare for the days when there is nothing coming in. Seven fat years, seven lean years. You better save in those seven fat years. And again, Andy, this is a biblical story. This isn't a hearty story. This is that Old Testament thing. Well, since you used the illustration of baking a cake, <laughs> and now I have to ask, favorite cake to bake or favorite cake to eat as we well, wrap up our together? Yeah, here's what I'll tell you very simply. There's a show on uh, the Food Network uh, called the Kids Baking Championship. Mm -hmm. And my, my first cousin, his daughter, Paige Gaynor, she won that two years ago. And she didn't oh. make a cake. She made grandma's cookies. And let me tell you something, Duff Goldman, who was the judge, he needs to get slapped upside his head because he told her that the cookies were they're underbaked. They weren't underbaked. They were perfectly soft the way grandmother did it. So my grandmother's sugar cookies and chocolate chip cookies are the best things in the world. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Our guest today, the Reverend Dr. Jameson Hardy, Bishop of the English District of the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod, author of Pastoral Leadership, Shepherding and Caring for God's People from Concordia Publishing House. Pastor Hardy, thanks so much for for carrying out this series with us, helping us uh, to learn more about leadership and letting us dig into your book with you. Great to be with you. Thank you. You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support the Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Anywhere.